You're listening to F-Stop, Collaborate, and Listen with host Matt Payne. This is episode 46 with guest Barry Sweet. Barry Sweet is the Wilderness Office Manager for Rocky Mountain National Park in Estes Park, Colorado. Uh, Barry was an amazing guest. It was really cool to get his perspective of photography, landscape photographers, um, various ethical issues that we face as landscape photographers from the perspective of, of the National Park Service. Obviously, he doesn't speak for the National Park Service. His opinions are his own. But it was really cool to get his viewpoint on a lot of the topics we face as landscape photographers. Um, and really, um, it was interesting listening to him talk about what the wilderness means to him and, and why he's dedicated his life to protecting these uh, national parks and public lands. Special announcements this week. I wanted to announce the winner of the F-Stop Gear Medium Shallow ICU that we announced on episode 45. The winner uh, with the comment that I most appreciated is uh, Candy Watson. Uh, Thank you so much, Candy. I appreciate it. And uh, as always, uh, would love it if you guys supported the podcast over on Patreon. Been producing a lot of bonus content over there. And we're a quarter of the way to our goal of being able to award a $1,000 landscape conservation award to a landscape photographer. Um, As always, uh, please feel free to rate the podcast on iTunes. Uh, Leave a comment. Would love it if they were all positive. But I know if you have something to say, you will. Reach out on social media, Facebook, Reddit, Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff. Matt Payne Photo, Matt Payne Photography, or search for F-Stop Collaborate and listen. Enjoy the podcast. Very sweet. Uh, thank you so much for uh, joining me on F-Stop, Collaborate, and Listen. I am glad to be here. Yeah, so Barry is the Wilderness Office Manager for Rocky Mountain National Park uh, in Estes Park, Colorado. Is that correct? That's correct. So um, our mutual friend, uh, Eric Stensland, who's a wonderful landscape photographer based out of Estes Park, uh, made the connection uh, between us because um, the topic of public lands and preservation of public lands as it relates to landscape photography is something that uh, recurs on the podcast quite frequently. And um, we thought, what a fantastic opportunity to hear directly from the Park Service on this topic. <laughs> Great. Yeah. So I thought it would be really cool to maybe just um, first start out with you telling us a little bit about yourself. Um, uh, maybe tell us your, your backstory and why you personally do what you do and why you have given your life for the protection of our public lands. Mm, great. I think it started in high school when I'd walk across the big grassy quad of um my high school in Arizona and I'd pick up trash. I couldn't figure out why people were throwing it down and I'd put it in the trash can at the other end of the the quad. And uh, it was natural then as I started exploring the West, I started hitting these national parks and these jaw-dropping national parks. And 
uh, I started my first position in the Park Service in Yellowstone National Park, working in campgrounds, and then came to Rocky and found my home. And that was 1987, so wow. a number of years ago. Amazing. And Yeah. And uh, wow. Um, just sort of a connoisseur of beauty, I guess. And wishing to preserve it for everyone so that they could all experience what I experience when I come here, which is a jaw-dropping awe. And knowing that there's some magic uh, by just coming in contact with that jaw-dropping awe. And when I first started working here, I worked at the entrance station. And I would watch people come into the park with their dull gray eyes from their busy, stressed-out lives. And... I was careful to watch the outgoing lane every day because suddenly they all had this sparkle back in their huh. eyes. And there's some magic that happens in there. We don't quite know what it is, but it happens to almost everybody that goes in. And I wanted to give my life to something larger than myself, something that had power in people's lives. And it ended being uh, a park ranger, which is preserving a world treasure. And, uh, that magic works for almost everyone that comes, and I, I want to give the rest of my life to it. That's amazing. Um, wow. <laughs> so I'm curious. So you're the wilderness office manager. So I'm curious, um, what does the wilderness office do, and, and how might that manifest differently in various national parks? <laughs> um when a visitor comes in our front door, we're about to give them their wilderness backpacking permit that will take them from one night up to up one night up to seven nights. And uh, we know that before they come in that door, that they have a dream picture in their mind of their dream trip. They could have been planning that dream trip for two months, two years, but that picture is still there. So uh, all the rangers here are trained to give them a warm welcome and then open the top of their head, take that picture out, look at it, and let them look at it, and then try to make it come true. And we do that ask, by asking a series of questions like, do you want to camp around aspen trees or pine trees? Do you want to camp around rivers or lakes? Do you want to camp around waterfalls or glaciers? Are you the kinds of people that like to be at the feet of mountains looking up, or the kinds of people that like to be at the tops of mountains uh, looking down? Or both. Uh, we'll ask you, yeah, or both. We'll ask, do you want to be near people or away from people? Because people from some from cities sometimes like to be near someone. It makes them feel comfortable. But people from Colorado don't want to see another soul the whole time they're here. So um, we then ask if there are children present in the party because water's really alluring in the high country. And we ask them to keep their children two steps back from the edge of raging water in the spring because... Uh, there's nothing more heart-wrenching in wilderness than swift water rescue because we're often too late because it's yeah. too far in. That Those two steps can sometimes save uh, someone's life. So the second of the last question we ask is, how far do you want to hike? Because we might be thinking nine miles and they're <laughs> thinking two. And we got to bring that into alignment. And then the last question we ask them is, anything you want to ask? Because we've been doing this sort of monologue thing and, and – uh, uh, that's, that's, that's when they say, yeah, which one do I make eye contact with the bear or the mountain lion? Cause I really don't want to get that wrong. <laughs> right. That makes sense. And then we basically, yeah, 
we try to then just make those dream pictures come true. So I teach the rangers that they're dream come dream picture come true makers, kind of like Santa Claus with a big bag of 267 of the most beautiful campsite gifts in the world. I just want them to give them away liberally so that lives are changed by coming in touch with wilderness so again. So on that same uh, vein, what kind of uh, philosophy and ideals do you and your team try to instill in visitors to the wilderness? Hmm. Hmm. You can't instill <laughs> love in another, but you can sort of um, lead them to wonder and have it transform them. And, you know, part of the thing that happens on their way home is that we know in their cars, they're saying, wasn't that the trip of a lifetime? And um, they don't have to come here and tell us that they got the trip of a lifetime. Our egos aren't that tied up into it. But we just know that we've done our best to make that trip come true. Because when you get asphalt from out from underneath your feet, and once again, get back to the nature that is just so natural for you to be in, then you can hear the voice of nature. You can stop your busy whirring life and and ask, you know, am I really living the kind of life that I want to live? And are, am I making the choices that I want to make? And Or am I just a reactionary? Have I just become an automatic machine because I'm under too much speed and pressure? And that introduction back to wilderness where they can be in touch with themselves again and be in touch with the natural world, not the human-made world, we think we've done our best to actually introduce them to a relationship mm. that speaks to them rather than a whole series of ideas mm. that might speak to them. Yeah. I know that's one of the things that I love about being in the wilderness is that it's um, the longer I spend out there, the more personally connected I feel uh, to, to that place. Um, it's, it's, it's so hard ah, to, yeah, it's so hard beautiful. to describe to people who haven't experienced it, but it's, once you do it, it's like there's nothing quite like it. Yeah, and it doesn't always take the first time. I, my, I have a, a friend who, who came a couple times and it did not click. Mm. And like the third time he came, he said, "Wow, huh. it's it's an it's an interesting relationship." But Absolutely. Uh, we want to get to the place that we're more like the flipper than the pinball in life. And you know, life doesn't always let you steer, but. Sam Flournoy says, when it does, you need to grab the reins with both hands. Huh. And part of doing that is spending time in wilderness and making decisions in wilderness. I think even our leaders make different decisions. They do. They make different decisions from behind a desk than they do when they make that same decision in wilderness. Hmm. You think differently. You think more holistically. You think richer and broader and, and uh, more beautifully and more poetic. So we're, we're uh, advocates of wilderness, if you want to put it that way. Absolutely. So what do you what do you want visitors to those wild places to understand and think about when they're out there? Ah, great question. Um, Four thousand years from now, I figure that people are still going to need to breathe fresh mountain air and enjoy beautiful mountain scenery. And um, uh, if we are conscious right now to preserve it well, then 4,000 years from now, it's going to look very much like this if we're very mindful. But, you know, what's the date 4,000 years from now? It's February 9th, <laughs> 6,018. I'm talking, I'm not talking about just a generation or two. I'm talking about a long time from now. And if you're going to be a visionary with long-term vision, you have to be a uh, cautious and careful with the lands that you have been given the privilege to protect. 
And so it is to be awake while we're out there, to be awake and not just awake for our own lives, but for lives that will come well, well after us. And I'm not just talking about human lives either. I'm talking about the generations of wildlife that will follow and and just loving the earth for the earth herself because she's beautiful and pristine and should be loved in her own right. It's that kind of awakeness that we hope to um, help people um, get a spark for when they're in our office. And we just do that by conversation. Beautiful. So um, I know right now uh, Rocky Mountain National Park, as well as a lot of the other national parks, are facing uh, rapidly increasing visitation, um, as well as other wild places um, in the country and probably all over the world. Um, I know you guys are probably uh, spending a lot of time over there in the National Park Service trying to figure out how to fulfill your mission of preserving those special places while also helping people engage in those and enjoy those places. So how do you, how do you balance those two very different and kind of uh, uh, opposite missions um, at the same time? Wow, you've hit right in the core of what we think about almost every day. Uh, we kind of got ourselves into some trouble at Rocky because we had three birthday parties in a row. Our 100th birthday for Rocky Mountain National Park three years ago. Uh, uh, and then the 100th birthday for the National Park Service two years ago. And then last year was Estes Park's 100th birthday. So those birthday parties and that uh, corresponding advertising that went, that came along with them got us an extra million Ooh. people. We had 3.5 and then boom, we had 4.5. And wow, gosh, cars everywhere and and people, you know, wanting to love the place, but but couldn't even find a place right. to park. And it, it got rough. We had to try to balance that out. But it's not anything new. We've been thinking about it for years and years. And and, and I'm going to kind of butcher this. You're going to have to please forgive <laughs> me for this. But I won't do it exactly right. But I want you to get the spirit of this. We did the VERP study years ago, which is um, a visitor and resource protection study. And it was in Arches National Park. Uh, it actually happened in Arches National Monument. Arches National Monument had 100,000 visitors a year, and they changed the name to Arches National Park. And the next year, they got a million visitors because the eagles say, uh, uh, if you call someplace paradise, kiss it goodbye. Because if you call someplace paradise, everybody wants to go to paradise. And so they all go to paradise. And they thought, oh, no, Arches is a national park. And they all came. Well, they didn't make any new visitor center. They didn't increase road size. They didn't increase any parking lots. Nothing. They just had to cram that extra 900,000 people into that little national monument slash park. And um, they had a crisis. And so what they did is they put a... Um, one of those sandwich board things up, an easel, I guess, at, at the trailhead to one of the, the most beautiful arches. And they put photographs on there that had um, 10 people on the trail, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 people on the trail. And then they asked people to vote how they felt about it when they went in. And people said, oh, we really like 10 people on the trail. 20 is okay. 30, we could still go. 40 is getting a little crowded. 50 is claustrophobic. And 60, I wouldn't mm. go anymore. And ask them, um, well, well, where should we cut off the number? They all said the same thing. Well, you should cut it off right after after huh. we go in. 
<laughs> because we don't want them to cut it off before. We want to go in first before they cut it off. And so we've got this dynamic tension going all the time. You know, we want people to come here because it changes their lives and we need to tell everybody. But we have to limit the number of people that come so that the quality of their visitor experience doesn't diminish. And you see that little girl on the playground, she's going to become your next senator. And if she never comes to the national parks or falls in love with wilderness and she grows up and becomes a senator, she's going to vote for city things like streetlights and curbs and rec centers. And we need to bring everybody here. But we can't bring everybody here at the same time or it's going to destroy the wilderness. So... Um, you want to protect the things you love. So we want people to come here and fall in love with it so that we'll all protect it. I think that's kind of what we think. I'm balancing yeah, it's, that a, out. it's a really interesting uh, paradox because, uh, and I think it especially hits home for landscape photographers because we're out in the field taking pictures of these amazing places that we love and we want to share, share mm. those images with the world. But then we want, and we want the world to love those places also, but we don't want them to go and ruin those places and overlove those places. So it's a really challenging paradox that um, we face today. Um, and it's beautiful that you all are dedicated to that because it's going to take the photographers that have such an incredible impact for drawing people to the national parks to somehow in the messaging that goes with that beauty to remind people of the responsibility that it takes to, to come here. I'm interested to hear your take on um, in, in if any role, uh, if you feel like photography has played on that increase in visitation to national parks, um, do you feel like, yeah, I'm <laughs> curious about that. Yeah, uh, it's subtle and I haven't really thought of answering the question before, but um, the the word ranger comes from the 14th century English term, which means keepers of the royal lands. And the royal family appointed rangers that would range the land and make sure there was no illegal logging, no illegal diversion of water sources, no poaching. And um, they were the keepers of the royal lands. And oddly enough, that's kind of what we still are today. We borrowed that term from them as rangers and that's what we still do we are the keepers of the royal lands but you don't have to be a park ranger and have a, an arrowhead on your on the shoulder of your shirt to be a keeper of the royal lands there's the spirit of being the keepers of the royal lands and and there are a lot of people that don't wear park ranger uniforms that are keepers of the royal lands and 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 the you know i know photographers that that go to the most beautiful and remote places in the world. And then they're, they, they say that here's the name of this lake or here's the, here's where, how you get there. And the next thing you know, those beautiful remote places are just, they've got trails going to them because everybody went there because the secret has been given away. And then there are another handful of photographers that understand the nature of turning people on to beauty and saying the larger name, Rocky mountain national park and, giving a photograph but never identifying where that place mm. is and then the places get to still remain um, pristine and untouched except for the great adventurers that still go and we want them to do that but the great adventurers don't go in single file yeah. lines on tundra because tundra takes 200 to a thousand years to regenerate and if you go in a single file line on tundra wow you can make something that's not going to disappear mm -hmm. for a while 
Whereas below tree line, we want everybody to 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 walk in single file lines, because then it does keep everybody to one single track. And so they rock hop shoulder to shoulder on tundra because they realize I'm not going to lead anybody up here and I'm not going to destroy tundra. So there's this I don't know how to say it to be honest, Matt. There's an awakeness somehow, and I don't know how we wake ourselves up or wake each other up. I've thought lately, kind of. And I sort of, I have a quote on my wall that says, I am not a teacher, but an hmm. awakener by Jonathan Swift. I love that quote. One of my employees came in and said, God, that's the most arrogant thing I have ever heard huh. to consider yourself an awakener. And then I thought, I bristled at that at first because I didn't like her saying that. And then I thought, wow, she's right. You know, that is arrogant. And so if I am an awakener in any way, it is like a sleepwalker wandering around in my sleep, bumping into other people and waking them up and going, <laughs> and then laughing. And, well, it's funny because... But, but it's our job to help each other I wake think, up. <laughs> um, I think you've hit on something because uh, I feel like if people can take a moment to envision a future, like you say, 6,000 years from now, uh, where where the place that they're visiting looks exactly the same uh, then as it does now, <sighs> then, you, then, you, then you're forced to think about what are the things that I'm doing right now that would prevent that from happening? And then it's just like, wow, like, and then if everyone else does those same things that I'm doing right now, wouldn't it then be impossible for this place to look the same in 6,000 years? Ah. I feel like that's the only way for people to make that connection is to think about the future. It really is. And it also involves that reflection time that you just mentioned. We call it the R word. We think it's one of the best gifts to humanity is the R word where you take time and just reflect and stop. And I have been saying lately that if it doesn't start from philosophy, it is reactionary. Mm. And that is my way of saying that we need to sit down in a quiet place and bore into the core of who we are, or go into room seven within ourselves, and say, what's important to me? And, and what do I value and believe and then formulate that enough to live a lifestyle based on values and choices rather than reactions um, to stimulus in life. It, and because of our speed, I swear we're hamstrung by our speed. I, I read a book title online the other day that said the cult of speed. And I thought, you got to be kidding me. Huh. I mean, somebody's named that. But when you yeah. slow down, you can get in touch with, you know, what's really important in this life and, and who am I? And am I going to walk on this cryptogamic soil because it's easy to get to my destination? Or am I going to walk up the stream bed where I'm not going to cause a dust storm later that's going to change the future of this national park? Huh. So how, how are photographers typically viewed by the national park system? Uh, I don't know if there's an us. I really don't. Um, uh, I, I, I got a personal bent for, toward photographers because they are, are the, the capturers of beauty. And to bring beauty alive in a human soul, it comes in so many forms. But to, um, to bring beauty so that we can close our eyes and roll our head back, roll our eyes back in our head and savor beauty. I mean, that word savor, I mean savor beauty. It's just such a gift. It brings so much life and richness and depth. 
And so I, I'm a personal fan of photographers. And your whole movement, you guys, I don't know who all of you are, but but you have all said, wow, we're, we're growing in numbers and, and we're getting better. And, and there's more of us. And those more of us bring two more feet, sets of feet into these national parks and these beautiful places. And, and too many feet are what, what hurt the place. So can we tread lightly as photographers? It's just a, such an impressive ethic to have you even bring the question up. I, I just, I'm proud of you. I don't know you. I haven't met you, but I'm so proud of you for thinking of the thought. No, thank you. <laughs> I mean, there's definitely a, a growing um, number of landscape photographers that um, are more and more mindful about the ethics and the impact that we have on the on the natural environment. Um, and unfortunately, there's a there's a, a growing number of people out there that are, I think, motivated by social media and exposure and things like that, that are doing some of some activities that are kind of opposite to that. And so, mm. um, I think in response to that. Um, there's a growing number of us that are trying to bring awareness to the issue. And, and, you know, we're not trying to create rules for other people. We just want people to think twice before they do things, you know? Oh, that's um, so beautiful. We call it the freest possible use. It's in our parks establishing um, documentation that we want the freest possible use. That freest possible use involves I call it a personal ethic. Let's go to leave no trace for a minute. There are seven leave no trace ethics. They all begin with a verb, which is an action word. And yet um, you can do leave no trace because it's a rule, or you can do leave no trace because it's an ethic. And a rule comes from without, but an ethic comes from within. Let me mm. give you an example of recycling. When recycling first came out, um, I did it because I was supposed to. And um, I had to separate all the cans and all the paper and all the plastic and all the everything. I remember having all these bins. Huh. And uh, I didn't want to do all that extra work, but yet I believed in it because it was an ethic and it came from within. And it's the difference between recycling because you have to or recycling because you want to. It's the difference between do and leave no trace because you have to or do and leave no trace because you want to. It's the ethic we're after. And that's why I took the leave no trace principles poster that I have from years ago. It says leave seven, leave no trace principles. Put it up on the wall. But we slapped the word ethic over the word principles because we mm. believe it that much. We want these things to become an ethic that comes from within because I think that's where the only real change happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm curious too, um, what do you and or the Park Service think about photographers holding uh, workshops in the national parks? Wow. I Again, I'm sorry I can't talk for the Park Service because I don't know if there is a we. Um, or just you personally. I'm just, you know. Like, me, me personally. I, I just, you, the group of you, all of you photographers, women and men and young people, uh, all, all the different ages, um, uh, you are this group of people that um, uh, have a, a genetic propensity to be awake. I, I don't know. Maybe it's because you're artists. 
Maybe it's because you see light and shadow and the rest of us can't see it. That Maybe it's because you're scientists and you study where the sun is going to be the day when you're going to be there at that lake so that you'll know what the, the view is going to look like and you are just got your fingers crossed on the cloud thing. I don't know what all of you do, but I swear you are some of the most awake people that I know. And if you're going to hold conferences and help each other wake up even more, bravo to you. You come and do that. And you gather in groups and you talk on podcasts and you you enlist each other and and, and um, upspin each other's ideas and make them one, one increment better. I call it progress by increments. We're waking up just increment at a time. Maybe we'll, you know, in this life we'll get to 10%. Maybe the next life we'll get to 11 I don't know where we're going, but there's <laughs> something about being awake about waking up that's just really cool and beautiful and a gift to us all. Brilliant. I love that. I think, um, you know, it's an, there's an interesting debate that occurs in circles of photographers about um, workshops and, and their impact on the natural environment. Um, and I think there's a growing movement of photographers that believe that um, kind of kind of resonates with what you just said, that um, the answer isn't to banish workshops from wild places. The answer is to ensure that workshop leaders are instilling those ethical values in the people that come on those workshops. So I think that is probably the right answer. Outstanding and, and just so well articulated. Thank you. We kind of view this thing as the community pool. The community pool, just round circle in front of your face and imagine that into the community pool you can pour kindness or cruelty, selfishness or selflessness, me first or we first, asleepness or awakeness, clean water, dirty water, fresh water, polluted water, good juju, bad juju. It doesn't matter what you pour into the community pool, but whatever you pour in the community pool is going to determine the quality of our mutual swim. Hmm. And we can't make polluted contributions to the community pool and think it's going to get on everybody else and not get on us. It's going to get on us too. So therefore, it makes a premium for all of us to pour as many clean water, fresh contributions to the community pool as possible because it makes for a beautiful and crystalline swim for all of us in contrast to a polluted, terrible swim for all of us. I think that's a beautiful analogy. <laughs> um, okay, so I wanted to shift gears just a little bit. Um, I was curious if you could uh, talk to us a little bit about the different roles of the National Park Service, uh, the Bureau of Land Management, and the National Forest Service, and how each of those different departments relate, and, and how photographers might relate differently with each of those different areas. Okay. Gosh, you're gonna, I'm going to butcher this again, so I'm asking my bosses to forgive me and everybody, but here we go. <laughs> uh, and, and remember when I say butcher, what I mean is that I'm going to be reductionistic. And Barry, your life doesn't reduce down that small. You can't put it into a one-liner, but I'm going to try, okay? I'm going to give it a world, Matt, and try to put it for you in simple terms. But I'm only going to do two of them. I'm not going to do BLM. I'll do National Park Service and National Forest Service. Beautiful. When you travel around the country, all of you, you pass into the National Forest Service land and it says, welcome to uh, Arapahoe National Forest or welcome to Sitgraves National Forest. Underneath it, there are two signs and you know what they say. They say, Department of Agriculture and the other one says, Land of Many Uses. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, think about agriculture for a minute. When you think about agriculture, what do you think of? You think about farms and harvesting and crops. Yeah, that's what happens in agriculture. And that's what happens in the National Forest Service land. The National Forest Service land was set aside by the wisdom of our foreparents to be a place where we could harvest some crops because logging is permitted in National Forest Service land. It's not permitted in national parks. And um, mining is permitted in the National Forest Service land, not in national parks. And grazing is permitted in National Forest Service land and not in parks. And so is um, crops and, and, and uh, uh, land leases for, for wheat. And, uh, they, and dams are often allowed in National Forest Service land and not allowed in national parks. And uh, what they're doing is farming and harvesting a crop of trees, farming and harvesting a crop of um, minerals, farming and harvesting a crop of water in the dam sense of the term, and electricity in the dam sense of the term when water goes down over those turbines. Farm and harvest a crop of beef when they allow grazing. Farm and harvest a crop of wildlife. It's a little weird here, so stick with me, because hunting is allowed in National Forest Service land, but not usually allowed in national parks. And it's also allowed to farm and harvest a crop of recreation, because you can take your four-wheel drive in the national forests and not usually in parks and go off-road, and fires, uh, campfires are permitted uh, generally and not in specific places like in national parks. And so they call it the land of many uses. It is agriculture in the land of many uses. But when you come into a national park, Rocky, for example, it says, welcome to Rocky Mountain National Park, land of two uses. If it had a sign, it doesn't, but if it had a sign, it'd say two uses. And those uses are recreation and preservation. And if you think about those for more than an instant, you realize that they're mutually exclusive because if you allow people to um, recreate 100%, the place gets trashed. Mm -hmm. And if you allow people, if you preserved it 100%, you'd have to put a big barbed wire fence around the place and uh, say, keep out. But we have to do two things simultaneously, both recreation and preservation. And that's the razor's edge that park rangers have to walk, never erring too far to one side or the other, always allowing 100% recreation and 100% preservation. It's what we call the twofold mission, and we're responsible to do it. Uh, every day. And that's what we're always, that's what all of our discussions are about. How are we going to do them both? Preserve the place and allow people to recreate, allow them to recreate while still preserving it. So we're different in what we do. And, and it's odd because you, uh, if you call, we both wear park ranger hats, we both wear ranger hats, but if you call me a forest ranger, well, I get a little twisted because I'm not a forest <laughs> ranger. I'm a park ranger. And if you call a forest ranger a park ranger, well, they get a little twisted because they're not really park rangers. They're forest rangers. But this, again, goes back to the wisdom of our foreparents that says we got to have some lands that we preserve and completely preserve and do only that. But we have to have other lands that we use. And, you know, I am grateful, Matt, to the Forest Service because the concrete foundation of my house was more than likely mined out of land that was administered by the National Forest Service and the two-by-fours that my studs were made for in my, out of, in my house were probably made from wood that came from a National Forest Service lease. Mm. So we ha 
it's the wisdom of our foreparents because we we got to have both of those things. It's not one or the other, or you're better than we are, or not. Right. It's it's uh, ah, it's 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 genius. These people were geniuses back then when they set these things up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I feel like uh, as a photographer, it's interesting because a lot of um, a lot of what we see happening in the national forest uh, areas is um, you, you, you see that many uses thing. And I think sometimes some of us get a little, um, I don't know if the right word is, but, uh, you know, we get a little upset because people are driving their motorcycles around off, off of a road or whatever. And you're like, this is like our national land. Stop messing it up. But you're right. It's set aside for many uses. And I think we always have to keep that in the back of our mind that it's their use is just as legitimate as our use, as long as it doesn't go too far to, you know, destroy it or whatever. Yeah, and if you look at the map of the United States, these little blotches of green you find all over the, the United States, these blotches of green are the wisdom of our foreparents that said, some lands we're going to use, but there are these other lands that we're going to just preserve, and we're not going to let them be used. So we have different functions, and... and uh, Wow, the 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 beauty aspect of um, so these national the the natural national parks, not the historic the or the historic national parks and and beauty national parks, it's uh, they're life transforming. You can either get back in touch with your historical roots and where we've come from and who we were along the way, or uh, you can just go and let your jaw drop and say, "Wow, wildlife without fences! What a wonderful thing!" <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So I'm curious, um, do you have any ideas for how we as landscape photographers and nature photographers can use our photography to promote the preservation of wildlands? No. What do you you think? Uh I, I I think ultimately my personal opinion is that it's, it's not just that we should want to use our photography to promote the preservation of wild lands that I think it's our responsibility to do that because, um, without, without that, those places will no longer exist the way we know them today. And people in future generations won't be able to experience them the same way that we have. So in my mind, um, my goal, every time I'm out taking photographs in wild places, is to try to not only instill a sense of wonder about those places, but also to get people to really want to have a personal connection with those places and make sure that they're there to stay. So um, for me, it's about trying to present them in such a way that can facilitate that connection and also um, get other people to start uh, thinking about what their role is in the grand scheme of pres- preserving those places as well. That's mm. me personally. I don't know. Other people yeah, have different yeah. thoughts. But. And that's what I want. I kind of would like to evoke everybody, invoke everybody's thoughts and have you have them ask that question after this podcast is over for themselves. And, and my input now that you've spoken for a minute is twofold. Um, back in the, uh, when Rocky became a national park, it all was word of mouth. 
hey, I've discovered paradise. It is Fern Lake and Rocky Mountain National Park. And everybody came here and they went to Fern Lake. By the 60s, I had a friend that worked here that said, yeah, there were 200 people camping there every Saturday night <laughs> with fires on the edge of the lake, tents on the edge of, lake, of the lake. And if you can believe it, privies dug right on the edge of the lake. And he said the resource damage was so phenomenal that that's when they said, you know what, it's time that we make a permit system. Mm. And so... Um, we basically made a permit system and we had people come through and pick up a permit and they had uh, they we would then send them all to their own personal lake we'd send some people to Thunder Lake and some people to Lost Lake and some people to um, uh, Lake Verna and and we became just a glorified redistribution program so that we spread all that weight out rather than 200 sharp pencil points bearing down on Fern Lake we spread them all around the park and we've been doing that ever since so that's one of the ways that we manage it is to spread out the use mm. that may be one one little playing card that, that I put on the table here and the other one is to spend some time asking the personal questions about our ego you know we, we know in search and rescue that um ego kills because you can't let your ego get in front of the team when you've got chopping helicopter blades over your head. You've got to always keep the team safety first and foremost in your mind. And um, we know that ego and boardrooms, there was a Fortune 500 company that had a little boardroom sign as you went into the boardroom with the big cherrywood table and the cherrywood chairs and cabinets and sign just simply said, leave egos at the door. And we know that uh, ego is what gets stuff done in life. People with ego get things done in life, but but you got to keep your eye on that thing. You know, it's over there in the corner, and it can go sideways on mm. you. And you you need to ask yourself, why am I a photographer? Is this about my ego, or is this about beauty and sharing beauty? And and can you have the room seven questions with yourself about ego and say, how much is my ego tied up in this? Or how much am I just, I, it's my love and my desire and my heart and I can't turn it off. And, um, but, but I think the ego questions are something that we as humans always need to be asking ourselves so that we don't damage the community pool, but we just continue to do everything to enrich the community pool. I love it. Well, thank you. That, that was, that was kind of answer I was hoping to get out of you. I appreciate it. <laughs> All right. I, At your service. <laughs> okay. I have um, a couple more questions for you. Um, I'm curious um, in your, all of your journeys in the wild lands that you help manage, um, what is either like one of the craziest things you found in the wilderness or one of the most inspiring things you found in the wilderness? Hmm. This is subtle, and uh, um, I've hiked all the trails. I've hiked most of the drainages and peaks, uh, and what I've I found out there is that um, you know people will get off trail and then lost for three days. And what we've got to do is somehow let everybody know that you've got to choose which way you're going to do it. You're either going to do the hug a tree method, or you're going to do the um, walk yourself out method but whichever one you do you got to stick with that all the way through you can't change horses in the middle of the stream we were looking for a couple of guys it took us three days and we do mile uh, round circumference searches for them with helicopter fixed wing and on foot and uh uh, we won't go back and look where we've already looked. So you can't decide you're going to move after a while. You got to stick with your hug a tree thing. Well, one of the guys uh, hugged hugged a tree for three days, and and um, as 
as that, that search came to an end and we finally found him, in his mind, he was um, lost in the wilderness. He was, there were trees to uh, Wyoming and trees to Kansas and trees to New Mexico and <laughs> trees to Utah. He was lost in the wilderness. In my mind, he was just up in the Hay Creek drainage in my backyard. And if he would have walked to the top of the ridge, he would have seen Winnebago's driving on Trail Ridge Road. And if he would have <laughs> hiked himself down outside that canyon, he would have met Ranger Gamble, who was waiting at the the um, Corral Creek Ranger Station looking for him for three days. And um, in analyzing that, Rocky Mountain National Park is just 26 miles tall by 13 miles wide. And my theory has always been that every river leads to a road in Rocky Mountain National Park. And uh, you're not lost in the wilderness. You, uh, I've always wanted to lay our big relief map down flat and pour a pitcher of water on it and see if it's true. But I've had every year all my staff check and find out, and it's true. Every river leads to a road in Rocky Mountain National Park. <laughs> that river might – you might get um, caught – stuck on stuck by cliffs or uh, impassable area in that drainage you might find brambles in that drainage or bogs in that drainage you might find fog depending on the kind of the day but if you are careful you can hike yourself out of here and and find civilization again because we're a beautiful national park we're in the middle of colorado but um uh humans have expanded to the place that we're everywhere and we've got trails or roads or something that's going to help you find your way out again. So I guess that's an unusual thing that I've learned after being out there all these years. That you're never really lost. <laughs> I love it. No, you might feel like it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not as big as you think. When you're in it, I mean, if you had to do from corner to corner, it would be gigantic. And there is a 14,000-foot a and a 13,000-foot continental divide in there in places. But um, if you're careful and you're mindful, and you don't panic, um, there are some other realities hiding behind the scenes. Mm. Awesome. Well, I have one final question, um, and feel free to take your time in thinking about how to answer it. Um, I'm curious what advice you would have for um, landscape photographers that are looking to um, have a fully enriched connection with wild places and, and how can they go about accomplishing that as a photographer? No, oh, you're going to flip when I say this. <laughs> uh, here are my suggestions. I would take my shoes off every once in a while and just walk on the bare earth. I would take my shoes off every once in a while and drip them in a mountain, dip them in a mountain stream. And I always carry a, an extra bandana so I can dry my feet off so I don't get blisters when I put them back on. But putting your feet in that stream is just one of the best life-changing experiences. And another one is to listen to the sound of those babbling brooks because they have a, a symphony going on inside of them. There's a treble, tenor, bass, alto. They have voices, and every part of the stream has a different voice. And I would do everything I could to get out there and open all five of my senses. And if you got six, open the sixth one before you open your aperture. Because you're going to take different pictures when you open all, all of your senses. And you're going to feel one with the earth again, not just looking at her mm. from the outside. And... Uh, 
and and and, and lay down in an aspen grove and just lay there and listen to the leaves applaud because it's just the most beautiful sound and the scent in there is so overwhelming. Those are I know I've waxed kinesthetic here. No, but, not uh, at all. I mean, it's funny. Um, it's funny because um, I think the best advice that that's kind of along the same lines is put your camera down for for a minute and just be there and and let every single sensation uh overcome you like it take oh. it take in the smell like close your eyes and and listen to what's around you like what's this how does the sun feel on the back of your neck like oh. you know like oh, beautiful uh i think it's um photography can only do so much in terms of bringing you to a place i think in order to really experience it you have to let all of your senses be there and 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 just just let them feel what's happening i think that's that's amazing advice <laughs> awesome awesome now you're, you've got a gift of articulation matt oh thank you <laughs> well yeah. It's been really awesome having you on the podcast today. I so appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule as the wilderness office manager to to pontificate with me on 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 this topic. I wouldn't go to pontification, but there are some thoughts from a ranger. And um, thank you so much for the invitation. 